Uh, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are for us, not against us. Thank you for sending Jesus, not only to be an example, but to be a savior. And this morning, Lord, I pray that you would just teach us. Help us see Jesus clearer than we did when we walked in. Help us love him more and embody his life in our life. And so I just pray that you'd speak through me, Holy Spirit, and in spite of me to do that very task. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, good morning, everyone. You guys really like each other. There's a lot of, a lot of social chatter this morning. Uh, real, real, I love it, love it, love the love. Um, so if you're new, my name is Andy, one of the pastors here at Restored. Um, and if you're new, I would just say this. Generally, when I speak, I have very, very, very interesting introductions. Like, you just need to know that about me. That's not happening today. Um, we have uh, too much ground to cover uh, in our sermon, and for the sake of time, I- I'm just going to dive right in. But I do need to get one thing just on the table and just acknowledge it. I have glasses on, all right? Got glasses. You've seen them. I've seen them. You don't got to say anything about it. It's fine. Um, I've appreciated the compliments and the love. Um, yeah, so they're on, and here we go. I'm going to use them to read, uh, believe it or not. Um, so we're in the middle of a uh, series, uh, and, and really what we're doing is a series on one chapter of the Bible, and it's based on Mark chapter 1. It's called A Day in the Life, and it's all about looking at what Jesus' life was like. Now, the events of Mark 1 happen a little bit longer than one day, but most of it happens in one day. But the idea is, um, I don't know if you guys remember like MTV's diary, like you think you know, but you have no idea. Remember that in 90s kids? Remember that? No, okay, five of you. All right, cool. Um, well, it's, that's the kind of idea. A lot of us, if we've been around church, in church, we have a general sense of who Jesus is, what he taught, what he did. Um, but often we don't slow down long enough to really consider what his life was like and what the implications are for our life. And so, um, so, so we've been saying, like, hey, hey, here's what Jesus did, and here's what we can draw from it. Um, last week, Brant, uh, Grant taught a phenomenal sermon uh, on the baptism of Jesus. And so for that sermon, it's kind of like, hey, here is what... It looked, here's what it looked like when Jesus got baptized, and then here's what we can now draw, 2024, San Diego, um, from his baptism. Like, here's what we can infer about our relationship to baptism based on what Jesus did, if that makes sense. And so today, we're going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus. And we're going to be talking about temptation, pretty sexy topic. Uh, temptation, kind of risque, kind of wild. Um, but here's the thing with temptation. We all experience it. We all have moments where we feel like we want to do the thing that, that we don't want to do. I've talked before about Distinguishing, distinguishing between your strongest desire in a moment and the deepest desires of your life. And sometimes you've got, it, like, for example, a deep desire to be physically healthy. And we have a strong desire in a moment to eat some real bad food, right? We, we have these moments. And that's a silly one, but, but, but at, the, at the deepest level, life is a series of choices. In a sense, life is a series of temptations. And by the way, um, no one makes heartbreaking decisions in an instant. Usually they're preceded by dozens, hundreds, thousands of small decisions that got them into a space to make a big decision that went really poorly or went really well. And so I want to look at how Jesus dealt with this issue of temptation. So Mark chapter 1, we're going to pick up in the text where we left off last week in verses 12 through 13. Mark 1 verse 12 says, Immediately... Big word in Mark. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. It's the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. Now, if you've been in church for a minute, you might be used to this idea of Satan tempting Jesus. But if you haven't been or you're just kind of reconsidering it, it's a wild story for a bunch of reasons. Um, And and it might conjure up a few questions. So I want to answer a few questions to help give us context before we even draw anything from it. And the first one is this. 
Who tempted Jesus? Who do you think? Satan? Yeah. Who led him to be tempted? Whoa. It's like a tag team situation. Is it Satan? Is it, it's kind of weird. Like, like the spirit led him to be tempted. If you guys are kind of Bible nerds, you know God never tempts us. So, so what, what does this mean? Um, and I'm glad you asked because a smarter man than me has an answer. Uh, one scholar says this. He says, the synoptic gospels tell us that after 40 days in the desert with no food, when Jesus was physically in his weakest and most vulnerable state, the devil began to tempt him. The Greek word, Pyrazo, translated tempt in these passages, carries both, I thought this was so helpful, it carries both a positive and a negative sense. Uh, the positive sense of Pyrazo is when someone offers a challenge meant to demonstrate what you have learned and to establish you in that skill or knowledge. The best translation for this positive sense is test because the one offering the challenge wants you to succeed. Um, I've had this moment with my kids. Uh, I'm like, hey, let's ride a roller coaster. Like, we can't do that. I'm like, I think you can. And because I, I, I want you to step into to a new vista of life. I want you to experience something. I kind of lovingly challenge them. Like, let's, let's see if you can do this. Or there's a homework assignment they don't think they can do. Or there's a, a situation in a game. Uh, Calvin, yesterday Calvin got called up to the 13-14 basketball game. He's 11. He had a three-pointer in the first two minutes of action. Never hit a three-pointer before. <laughs> Lost his mind. Um, but, but when the coach asked him, do you want to play up today? He was nervous. He was like, I don't know. He like looked at me. And I was like, give it a try, man. I was like, worst case scenario, uh, worst case scenario, you fail. And you're like, I'm 11. You guys are 13 and 14. Best case scenario, you're like, that's right. I should be up here. So, but anyway, it's kind of like, a, hey, I think you can do this thing that you're not sure you can do. There's a positive testing. And that, that, that's that's inside of the word pyrazo, but, but there's also a negative sense of this Greek word uh, pyrazo, and it's when someone is trying to entice you away from what is good and into what is destructive. This usually happens through a series of seemingly small compromises. The best translation for this negative kind of challenge is tempt. So we have that same word. And so the Spirit led Jesus into the desert for a challenging time of testing in order to establish him more fully in the Father's authority and power. The devil, however, was using an opportunity to co-opt Jesus for his own purpose by tempting him to serve himself and seek out his own glory. Sorry, real cotton mouth. It was going to get weird if I didn't do that. Um, so this passage is incredibly short here in Mark, but it doesn't give as much detail as the other autobiographies of Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, if you've been around church for a while, uh, those are called the synoptic gospels. And they're, basically, they're, they're telling one, they're telling a, 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 the same story uh, in three different ways. And Mark is the shortest gospel, and he wrote it for people who had no background with the Hebrew scriptures. It was written for Gentiles, in other words. Like, you could pick it up and go, I don't know anything about the Old Testament, but I'm learning something about this guy. Uh, it's, it's a fast-moving story. As a matter of fact, one of the most frequent words used in Mark is the Greek word for immediately. He keeps the story moving. Uh, it's a simpler gospel, also because the source of the material was a blue-collar fisherman uh, you might have heard of named Peter. Most people believe that this is Peter's gospel, who was not a scholar. Uh, he did not make it into rabbinical graduate school. Uh, he was doing a family business when Jesus called him uh, into following him. Uh, he was not a big details man, as we know. He was behind on his taxes, on the reg. Um, and he, yeah, he wasn't a scholar. So Mark is, he, he was also Jewish, but, but, but Mark is shorter than the other Gospels, much shorter. 
because it has very little interest in connecting Jesus to the story of the Old Testament in the way that Matthew does, or, or Luke does, for example. Matthew, however, who wrote Matthew, he was an accountant, tax collector, and he was a real details guy. Also, his gospel's uh, more interested in reading Jewish readers who were familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. He's interested in showing you how Jesus fulfills all the prophecies in the Old Testament, for example, or the symbols. Um, uh, for example, he opens his gospel with a genealogy, about 50 verses of genealogy. Adam had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and he keeps going, you know, David had Solomon, keeps moving through the Old Testament. Uh, and you're like, this is so boring. But to a, to a Jewish person, they'd be like, whoa, this is huge. This is the fulfillment of, you know, David's kingdom. Mark, on the other hand, his beginning, he doesn't have a, it just says, this is the gospel of Jesus. One day there was a man named John. <laughs> like he just gets right into the story. And so Matthew is kind of like that three and a half hour Martin Scorsese masterpiece that came out last year, The Killers of the Flower Moon. Three hours, 26 minutes in a theater. Good night. Mark's more like an animated Disney movies from the 90s. Story driven, fast moving. You don't have all the details. It's over in an hour 20. You know what I mean? And so here's what I want you to catch. They aren't telling two different contradictory stories. I guess it's like, it's kind of a dark story, you know, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon to be a Disney movie. So they are telling different stories. Bad analogy, Andy. Um, imagine there's an hour 20 Aladdin and there's a three hour 26 Aladdin. Um, they aren't telling two contradictory stories. They're communicating the same story of Jesus's life, but they're emphasizing different aspects of that same story. Does that make sense? Like stuff that you would care about. Like if you were retelling a story to a friend who you know is really into fashion, you're like, dude, they were wearing this. You're like, oh my gosh, right? Talk to someone else, you're like, hey, in the background, the Lakers game was on. You're like, oh my gosh, right? Like depending on who the person is. Um, but they're emphasizing different aspects of the same story. And so we see in the, these distinct accounts of the, we see this um, reality in their distinctive accounts of the temptation of Jesus. Um, Mark uh, just says he was led to the desert. Jesus tempted him. Angels took care of him. Scene. Cut. It's two verses. Uh, Matthew's account of the temptation describes the different types of temptation. He records a dialogue between Jesus and Satan and links what Jesus is doing in a much clearer way to the prequel, the Old Testament. So we're actually going to turn to Matthew chapter 4 to dive into this temptation. You guys okay? A lot of Bible spice. Okay. A lot of synoptic gospels talk. Uh, Matthew 4 verses 1 through 11, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy back. Jesus is challenging his identity and claim as Messiah, as son of God. And Jesus, um, he rebuffs him and he does it by quoting the Old Testament. Verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. And then by the way, Satan quotes the Bible rough Bible study. He says, he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your feet against a stone. Obviously, he's, he's quoting it out of context. Verse seven, Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. In other words, don't do a foolish thing to prove you're loved. Verse eight, again, the, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. It is written, Old Testament 
quote from the Torah. By the way, Satan's offering Jesus something that's already his. He's an heir to. He's just trying to give him a shortcut. The cross is going to be difficult. Do we we really think the resurrection is going to pan out? What if he just worshipped me and I gave all this to you? Which, by the way, the Bible actually says Satan has... (laughs) Pre-Jesus entering the world, Satan has control of the earth in in a bunch of ways. He's got reign. He does stuff. Um, He has a lot of power, a lot of power. So he's offering Jesus his piece of the world, but um, with the shortcut. And he rejects it. And again, verse 11, then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. So um, again, questions you may have reading this. Went through one already. Second one, do we really believe in Satan? Are we doing that? Is this one of those churches we are one of those churches. I'm so sorry. We, we hold historic uh, orthodox view of, of kind of Satan, sin, and death. We believe um, that Satan is a real demon, that, there, that there, is, uh, there are evil forces in this world that we can't always see, uh, but we're aware of. Um, and again, this might be hard to swallow. I, I can totally understand that. Uh, I didn't grow up as a Christian. I kind of thought it was goofy. Um, but what I had to admit was there's a lot that's wrong in this world, and there's a lot that's wrong with people, and no one has very good answers for why that is. Uh, John Mark Comer writes this, kind of famous pastor, used to be in Portland and L.A. now. He says, for Jesus, the devil is real, not a myth, not a figment of an overactive imagination or a superstitious hangover from a pre-scientific age, and definitely not a red cartoon character on your shoulder or Will Ferrell on Saturday Night Live shredding out B-level death metal on his electric guitar. No, the devil is an immaterial but real intelligence at work in the world with more power or influence than any other creature in the universe after God. He is the evil behind so much of the evil in our souls and society. Read that more time. He is the evil behind so much of the evil in our souls and society. For Jesus, the secular theories that attempt to explain evil as simply a lack of education, inadequate wealth redistribution, Marxist power analysis, or even the toxicity of religion gone bad all fall short of explaining reality. The only way to make sense of evil in all, its mal- uh, uh, in all, in all of its evil from large global systems of evil such as systemic racism or economic colonialism, to much smaller human-scale evil, such as our inability to stop our self-destructive, addictive behaviors or hold back biting comments towards our friends, is to see an animating force behind it, adding fuel to the proverbial fire. Dividing humanity against itself in a kind of societal suicide. Now, if we're honest, and frequently we are, to many of us this sounds wonky. A devil, really? Come on, we know better. But consider this. What if Jesus knew the true nature of reality better than we do? What if his perception was even more acute than that of Steven Pinker or Sam Harris or Stephen Hawking? What if he was the most intelligent teacher to ever live and his insight into the problems and solutions of the human condition is the most piercing to date? What if our Western, largely white world is actually blind to a whole dimension of reality, ignorant of what many consider to be common sense? all around the world? What if we're attempting to solve the problems of the world without dealing with the root cause? What if for all our science and technology and political theory, we are actually oblivious to, or worse, willfully ignorant of the facts? 
Now, again, even if um, we don't see Satan or whatever, he pops up. Um, we can do a deeper dive on that if you want to, biblical theology of angels and demons and all that stuff. Um, the reality is, is we see the effects of Satan. Um, before, uh, before scientists and doctors knew how germs worked, people died all the time because they didn't wash their hands. So Louis Pasteur was like, hey, guys, let's wash hands. Um, and so they couldn't see, he couldn't, we couldn't see the germs, but we could see that the havoc they were wreaking. And a guy had a theory that made a ton of sense. And the reality at a much broader level is we have seen what evil has done to life in this world. We've seen what it's done to our families. We've seen, we've seen what it's done to ourselves. We've seen what it's done to our neighborhoods. We've seen what it's done to uh, this country. We've seen what it's done to the world at large. And so have you. In a world where things like sexual assaults are far too common, and genocide, and human trafficking, and war, and adultery, and divorce, and child abuse, his effects are everywhere, breaking what should be. But at the end of the day, I think the highest, by the way, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, that's great, we're stoked you're here. But if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus had a worldview where he believed in the demonic. He believes in dark spiritual realities um, a lot. He engages with them all the time. Now, last thing I'll say on this is um, Christians can get real weird with this, okay? We want to be honest about that. The devil made me do it. Gets real weird real quick. It's a cop-out to not take responsibility. Now, here's the thing. Satan can tempt you. He can't make you sin. Does that make sense? Um, so so uh, there's a guy named Dr. Terry Wardle, and he... Um, uh, with a group of clinicians, runs a, um, a ministry called Healing Care Ministries in Ohio, and they have uh, therapists and spiritual directors. And, and one of the things that he talks about is when people come in, they're in, they're in a tough spot. A lot of times they've got addiction stuff going on, they have uh, traumatic backgrounds. And he said, um, you know, when people come in, um, he said, people ask me, like, spiritual warfare, is this demonic? What's going on in their lives? And he said, you know, honestly, probably the majority of the time, um, what's going on in their life is not caused by the demonic. He says, like, you know, pretty much never is it caused by. Um, he said, however, and he taught a lot on Jesus' worldview, uh, he said, however, um, I've never seen a scenario where the demonic was not a contributing factor to making the wounds in their life more painful or making their desire to use stronger. Does that make sense? Um, and so, again, we don't, we don't want to make it everything. Uh, last analogy I used, I was kind of I'll just say this. I've heard this was really helpful to me. Um, uh, we've got playoffs today, by the way. Any 49ers fans in the house? Ooh, very muted. Yep. Oh, there it is. Cameron Hoare. I didn't realize. Uh, I thought you were a Raiders guy for some reason. You had that bad boy energy, dude. I just am shocked. JK, JK. All right. Um, I've heard it said before that, uh, for, the, for football fans, we'll, we'll go here, um, that um, uh, d- demons are kind of like defensive linemen and you're a quarterback. If you stare at defensive linemen, you cannot complete a pass. But if you're completely unaware of them, you will not com- you'll, you'll get sacked a lot. You'll, you'll, get, you'll get tackled a lot. Um, and so the idea is like they're there, they're present, you're aware of them, but you still got to keep doing what you're called to do. Does that make sense? Uh, pray when you need to, jump in there, all that stuff. So, so last question to set context. Um, uh, you might be looking at this passage wondering, could Jesus have actually sinned? Kind of wild. Like, could he have actually done it? Um, and uh, I think the answer is yes. I believe he, he could have sinned if he wanted to. Um, uh, later on in the New Testament, the author of the letter to the Hebrews says, in Hebrews 4.15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. 
Um, now, he was tempted as we are. When you're tempted, is there a possibility that you might give in for you? Anyone not have that dynamic? Okay. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think that's a reality. Um, uh, Presbyterian pastor R.C. Sproul writes this. He says, the best theologians, past and present, have been divided on the question of whether Jesus could have sinned. I believe that since Jesus was fully human, it was possible for him to sin. Obviously, the divine nature cannot sin. But if Christ's divine nature prevented him from sinning, in what sense did he actually obey the law as the second Adam? At his birth, Jesus' human nature was exactly the same as Adam's before the fall with respect to his moral capabilities. Jesus had what Augustine called, uh, says Latin, passe picare and the passe non picare. That is the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. Adam sinned, Jesus did not. Satan did everything in his power to corrupt Jesus and tempt him to sin. That would have been an exercise in futility had he been trying to tempt a divine person to sin. Satan was not trying to get God to sin. He was trying to get the human nature of Christ to sin so that he would not be qualified to be the savior, to be the sacrifice for all the sins of the world. And so uh, I believe he, he could, and to me that actually means, it means more to me uh, that he endured what he endured um, because he longed to do that. So um, the temptations of Jesus reveal four things. Here's why I said we're just hitting our outline, you guys. We're just hitting our outline scared, right? First point, it's going to be about 45 seconds, so take it easy. Um, but the temptations of Jesus reveal four things to us. Uh, number one, the fulfillment of the story of Israel. Number two, a picture into how we are still tempted. Three, a template of how we can overcome temptation in our own lives, and an act of love for us. And so again, the temptation of Jesus reveals the fulfillment of the story of Israel. One scholar writes, to be a Jewish boy in Jesus' generation was to have had, was to have had your mind filled, your imagination shaped, and your, your character forged by your ancestors' stories, the stories of Scripture. Just as, just as in our modern world, where if you sing the opening line of a popular song, others can easily finish it. In Jesus' day, even the faintest reference to a familiar Scripture story led to the drama of that story unfolding in a well-trained Jewish mind. Given his role as not just a casual student of scripture, but as one who became a rabbi, Jesus knew all these stories by heart. Start the story, he could finish it. So it was also with his temptations. The temptations Jesus faced were not the devil's inventions. They were based in, in scripture stories or rooted in scripture stories Jesus recognized. Iconic moments from Israel's history that represented all other temptations that Israel ever faced. Whereas you and I might not pick up the backstory when reading these temptations, Jesus was dialed into the deeper significance from the tempter's first phrase. As he faced his first temptation, Jesus recalled how the people of Israel grumbled about, about not having food while wandering the wilderness in Exodus 16. And with his second temptation, when they tested God at Massah, Exodus 17. And in his third, when they worshiped the golden calf at Mount Sinai, Exodus 32, close quote. And so the idea here is that Jesus comes to do what Israel could never do. That God, after the fall, God longs to have a relationship with humanity. And he starts the journey of, 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 of bringing us a Messiah, bringing us a reconciler. But initially, humanity was given this calling. Adam and Eve were given this calling at the beginning. 
to go and reflect God's goodness and glory everywhere they went, to take his love and light everywhere they went, to fill the earth with that. And then the fall happens, and then God chooses a man named Abraham, and, um, and now there's this, this family, this, 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 this people group, the Hebrew people, and he calls them, and, and, he, and he delivers them out of slavery in Egypt, and they're oppressed, and he brings them out, and he says, be my people. And he, similar thing, be a light to the nations. The whole law in the Old Testament is just designed to, to be a people that stood out in the ancient Near East and would still, out, would still stand out today. A culture where the poor were taken care of, and we, we go on and on and on, but, 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 but there's, this, there's this reality. There's a whole sermon on the law. There's some stuff that contextually will freak you out if you read it, if you don't understand, but it's, it's actually pretty incredible if you understand it contextually. Um, but, but Israel fails, and they fail and fail and fail, and then they get a king, and the king fails, and the prophets come and go, hey, guys, you got to get it together, or you're going to go into exile, and then they go into exile and continue to rebel. And so Jesus does what Adam didn't do. Jesus does what wandering Israel didn't do. Jesus does what David didn't do and Moses didn't do. And the rebellious, the rebellious Israel who refused to listen to the prophets in exile couldn't do. What you and I couldn't do. Number two, the temptations of Jesus reveal how we are still tempted. How we're still tempted. It's going to be the longest point. It's the meat of the message, but it's important. Um, here's what I mean. There, there's three different temptations, but underneath them, many people have said for a very long time, that there are archetypes of every temptation you'll ever face. That all three of these, any temptation you've ever faced in your life comes back to one of these three temptations. Fundamentally, they're all about, are you going to trust God or trust in yourself? And then the temptation's distinctions where they're different is what you're trusting him or yourself for. Um, uh, again, uh, the, um, by the way, um, really, really helpful resource um, on the temptation of Christ. There's, if you want to write this down, readers or leaders, uh, there's a book by a guy named Tommy Brown called The Ache for Meaning, and it's just on the temptation of Christ and these three temptations. Um, but throughout church history, Augustine's talked about it, Henry Nowen's talked about it, Thomas Keating's talked about it, Ruth Haley. We can go on and on and on. Um, a lot of people agree that, that they kind of all fall within these three, but I like the language he uses. So he says this, he says, the three temptations Jesus faced represent every temptation you will face in life every temptation humankind has ever faced. They are the three areas where each of us is tempted to meet, this is huge, tempted to meet healthy human needs in unhealthy ways. Healthy human needs in unhealthy ways. The mind works hard to control and manage reality and has its own plans for remedying the human situation outside of God and abandonment to his divine will. Thomas Keating, in his work on the true self and the false, describes these plans as emotional programs for happiness based on childhood instinctual needs and all the ways we compensate for these unfulfilled needs. He identifies these basic primal impulses as the following, kind of three. We looked at them a few weeks ago, actually. But there's one that's safety, security, survival. It's kind of one, safety, security, survival. Um, there's affection, esteem, approval. And there's power, respect, and control. Again, meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Eugene Peterson, the guy, guy that wrote the, the message, he says this. He says, the devil's three temptations of Jesus all had to do with ways and means. Every one of the devil's goals was excellent. Again, not a bad need. The devil had an unsurpassed vision statement, but the ways and means were incompatible with the ends. Again, the issue was not what needs Jesus had, but how he would meet them. And the same applies to us. So what are the temptations? Uh, again, this is the way um, 
this is the way that Tommy Brown breaks them up, and I just think it's really helpful. Uh, ask questions, which you'll look at in your groups this week. Questions at the heart of every temptation. Number one, will I have enough security or safety? And again, we see this in Matthew 4, 3. You got to eat, man. Number two, uh, am I enough? It's the temptation to perform for approval. Hey, jump off the temple. God will catch you. It'll be really impressive. Again, it's connected to affection or esteem, what people will think of you. And then the third, the third temptation, Matthew 4, 9, again, it's idolatry to bow down and worship. But, but, but Satan said, worship me and I'll give you something. And what he said he would give you is control over everything, power over the world. Am I in charge? So will I have enough? Am I enough? And am I in charge? Now, um, I think it's important. I think this is a helpful tool because I think for us as just everyday people, um, we often, again, all of our temptations fall into these. It's helpful to have some, some handles to go, oh man, I'm believing the lie that I'm not going to have enough. And that's impacting my life, my behavior, how I'm responding to these temptations. I'm believing the lie that, that I'm not enough in the eyes of someone. And what I'm doing, I'm getting pretty weird to, to, to get that. Uh, am I in charge? You know, I, I want power and control. And again, all three of these are not bad. It's what we'll do to get them is where the sin comes in. It's turning to ourselves rather than to God. Um, when we give into the first temptation, um, a couple of things will happen, or, or it might look like a couple of different things. And I want you to, just, I'm going to go through a little diagnostic for about five minutes. I want you to think about yourself and ask yourself, man, is this true of me? So when we give into the first temptation, will I have enough? A couple of things will happen. Um, often we'll overwork and neglect the people and priorities that should be important to us. Um, we might stay in like super unhealthy, toxic relationships because they make us feel secure and we're afraid to leave. Um, we'll be greedy. We'll withhold generosity, right? Because I never can be sure I have enough. Um, we'll live in constant anxiety over finances, even when we have more than enough. Um, I've sat with people as a pastor over the years. And, um, and again, I grew up, I grew up, my family was, was poor, man. Like we didn't have a car for about five years when I was a kid. Um, I have like just a ton of memories. Like, like we weren't the poorest people in the world, but there was a lot that was lacking when I look at like how most people grew up. And I've had times where I've sat with people and they're worried about money. They're worried about like, am I going to have enough? And it's been such a weird experience because we'll be talking and then I'll realize that their worst case scenario that they're afraid of is like five times better than anything I could ever even <laughs> dream of. Does that make sense? And, and so, and again, I'm not, I'm not ju judging them. I'm just like, in their mind, by the way, they're genuinely nervous. They're genuinely afraid. These goals have become everything. And they're stressed out and they're yelling at people they love and they're nervous and they're, um, they feel far from God and all that's going on. I go, oh, it's, it's, it's a perspective thing. But, but, but again, anxiety over finances comes. Often the more money you have, you, the more anxious you'll be about money. Um, if you have this perspective, by the way, having money doesn't do this. It's having this perspective about money. Um, we'll cheat in our taxes. We'll never feel like we have enough. We'll take a job offer that's good for our career advancement, but very bad for our spiritual and relational health, maybe, maybe the people in our family. All throughout Scripture, God's people are called to work hard, by the way, work real hard, set a standard. 
I think if you're a Christian, you should be one of the best people at what you do. Whatever your industry is, you should work hard at doing excellent work. Work hard, but then trust him with the results. Surrender the outcome to him. Where it gets weird is when we don't want to surrender the outcome and we can't stop. Now, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, God's people are commanded to Sabbath, which meant in a society where there was little margin when it came to food and money, they stopped working one day a week and had to ingest enjoy their life and practice gratitude for all that Yahweh had done for them. You guys get how crazy that is on paper? Now, again, a ton of research has been done over the years, and like, if you work, there's a point where if you keep working, you're less productive. Um, but the ancient world didn't know that, and they didn't care about that. They were like, keep working or you die, essentially. And God goes, hey guys, day off, one day off. Like, what do you mean a day, right? Like, we could be, nope, day off. On top of that, in a world that did not have a ton of margin, they don't have refrigerators, they don't have, you know, transportation, they don't have, there's a ton of things that they don't have, uh, very, very crude transportation. Um, they're also commanded to set aside 23% of their income each year. Their tithe was not 10%. It was 23%. 10% to the, to the temple, similar to like giving to a church today. 10%, I love this one. We've taught on this before. 10% to enjoy and bless other people with, friends and family. Um, it, matter of fact, in Deuteronomy, um, there's a command to have a beer and wine fund, which I think is incredible. Look it up. And then 3% to take care of the poor. Okay, so he t- uh, so again and again there were s- severe punishments in the Old Testament for disobeying the Sabbath. It wasn't a random rule; it was a declaration to your friends and family you cannot trust God to meet your needs. Hey, everyone, I don't trust God. You shouldn't either. Does that make sense? And so, through Sabbath and generosity, they learned to be a people who, though hardworking, entrusted the security ultimately to God. Which, friends, I gotta say, is a freeing place to live. Like it really is. Doesn't mean you'll never be nervous about finances. Doesn't mean you'll never be nervous about markets. Doesn't mean you'll never be nervous about what's happening at your job. It just means that you'll face it in a different way. Number two, when we give into the second temptation, am I enough? Our lives will be characterized by some other things. Uh, the first one actually actually does have to do with money. Um, you'll probably spend a ton of money on possessions to try to impress people. So you're not worried about hoarding it. You're down to spend it because um, you want to look fly or you, right, you, uh, maybe a car you don't need. Uh, it's kind of flex. I love this quote. I forget who said it, but it's, it's, we spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't even like. It's America. We'll obsess over what people think about us constantly in a state of anxiety. We won't speak up about what we believe. We'll kind of punk out in social interactions or social media and not stand for truth and compromise in the face of opposition. We'll lie a lot because we want people to like us. We'll date or even marry someone who we know will cause us to compromise our standards. We'll pursue sexual relationships outside of God's created design to feel special or close to someone, whether that be premarital sex or adultery. Which, by the way, um, this idea of am I enough and esteem is really big. Um, adultery is always about connection and intimacy. It's not about sex fundamentally. It's I want to feel important. I want to feel valued. I want to be delighted in. Um, we'll overwork due to bad boundaries, what we do for our coworkers, what they should be doing for themselves. We'll let other people boss us around because we don't want to make them mad. We can go on and on and on. And to overcome this temptation, we need to become a people who find our identity in Jesus, not what people think of us. 
and Jesus, not what people think of us. We need to immerse ourselves in the love of Father each day before we enter a world that will be brutal on our souls. We need to learn to pray for the Holy Spirit's boldness to speak up unapologetically. Again, gently. Don't be a jerk, but unapologetic. Like, this is what I believe. You don't have to believe it. I'm not mad at you. I'm not yelling at you. I don't have signs. I don't have a bullhorn. But I believe Jesus is the way to God, for example. Being a person of conviction who, like Jesus, is willing to be rejected, but who is also free from needing the acceptance of people so we don't have to be crushed. We can be so secure in Jesus' love that we're free from the comparison game. We're free from jealousy. We can root for others instead of competing with them to feel like we're important. Close your eyes for a second. If you're willing to, you don't have to, I guess. If you're new, whatever. No one's gonna steal your purse, but, but do, do what feels comfortable for you. But I just want you to imagine for a second like, imagine yourself actually sitting in this room or walking around this room and not caring what other people think about you. Not wanting to impress them an ounce. Not needing to pretend you're better than you are or cover up your weakness. Not needing to flaunt anything or tell a better story than they told. Imagine feeling just completely like even your shoulders just released, like you're at peace in the presence of others because you know who you are and whose you are. Imagine being free to love people instead of using people to get them to like you or to be impressed by you. You can open your eyes. Don't you want that? Isn't there a, free, a freedom there that, like, it, it almost sounds too good to be true, but if we could have it? And the gospel invites us into that. Which leads to our last temptation, which is power. Again, if we seek to answer the question, am I in charge all the time, our lives will be marked by um, tearing others down, self-righteousness, trying to control other people. It could be a romantic partner, it could be friends, people at church, your kids. could be sacrificing your integrity to inquire, acquire power. Um, throughout church history, there's been times where it happens towards the end of the Roman Empire, and there was a guy named Eusebius, and Eusebius wrote a thing called official theology. It's a little church history nerd out for a second. And in the theology of Eusebius, um, what he did was is he said, Constantine is a really good man, um, and he is like the, he is the gift. He's the greatest gift to the church since Jesus essentially is what he wrote. And he's, he's not a Christian. He's kind of wild. He says wild stuff. He hurts people, but he's cool to let us do whatever we want. Like, like if we help him get power, he'll give us power. And what happened at that time was people started to look to Constantine as a pseudo messianic figure. And they started to equate Rome, the empire of Rome is like a part of the church. Now, I know this doesn't sound like anything that's happening in our culture right now in the evangelical church, but it's exactly what's <laughs> happened with conservative politics in this country, where, and again, I'm not getting into whatever. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not progressive politically. I'm not really conservative. It's like I think a lot of it's crazy. 
what you've seen is the American Evangelical Church for about 30, 40 years, about 50 years now, um, Republican politicians, again, I'm not hammering on Republicans. What I'm hammering on is they realize these people will vote for us if we say like three things and the rest of it, you know, doesn't really matter. And we're at kind of the epitome of it now with the Trump stuff where, where, where you have Christian leaders who go, he's a great man. He's misunderstood. He's a good guy. And, and, and does that make sense? And again, the watching world goes, he's, he bragged about sexual assaults. Like say what you want. He's not a great guy. He's not a godly guy. Does that make sense? But what they'll point to is, Hey, it's the trade-off. It's the trade-off. Like there's power in this for us. If we link ourselves to a political party, they'll give us what we want. By the way, um, progressives do it too in other ways now. It's, it's shifting a little bit, especially with younger Christians, but people, they're more, um, they're more, they find their identity more in their political ideology than in the gospel of Jesus. And what you see though, and here's the big thing I want to hit, is when Christians lower themselves to the point where they're like begging politicians for power. Does that make sense? Like if we have the gospel, we can stand on our own two feet and go, King Jesus has demands on this earth and you can go with them or not, but you can't buy us or trick us or whatever it is. But sacrificing our integrity acquired power. And if you look at it, most of these guys, I think a lot of the people that were involved in this, by the way, in the church, I think they were mostly pretty good guys who wanted to see um, the gospel impact the country. We can do that through politics and we want to influence society. But there were trade-offs, if that makes sense. And we can see that so often. Now a whole lot of people go, oh, Jesus is connected to Donald Trump. Which, guys, I don't, you vote for Donald Trump all day. I don't care. He shouldn't be linked to Jesus in, in, a, in a way where people go, yeah, they're the same thing, holding hands. They love the same stuff. Jesus uh, should stand out on his own. It could look like taking shortcuts to move up the ladder. Uh, I met with a guy one time who um, he forged a transcript uh, a grad school transcript to get a law at an impressive firm. It wasn't at the church, it was like 20 years ago. But this idea, go, I want power and I'll do whatever it takes. Now again, we should want to be people of self-control. We should want to be people who even have power over others. But in the kingdom, power exists to serve others. It exists for those, you, uh, leader, leadership exists for those who are leading, not those who are uh, doing the leading. It's for those who are being led. And so Jesus' temptations reveal how we're still tempted today. And number three, um, these temptations reveal an example of how we can overcome temptation. A couple different things you see. One is the word. Jesus has scripture hidden in his heart and it's ready to go when he needs it. The, script, the gospel, is, the scriptures have shaped his worldview, his view of ethics, his view of morality, his view of the goodness of the father, which is the thing being questioned by Jesus. It's, are you really his son? And is he really the father? So, so, so the word's so important. Uh, the other thing is, is the spirit. Um, I think we have a, a slide for this, by the way. Um, uh, the second one's the Spirit. Allowing yourself to be led by the Holy Spirit is, is a huge part of overcoming temptation. Um, actually praying and opening yourself up to him, asking him what he wants you to do, asking him for the wisdom that you need. Um, another one is, uh, is motivation. Um, the motivation of Jesus in dealing with this temptation is grace. And this is important because for a lot of us, our motivation when we deal with temptation 
um, is guilt or shame. And here's the thing, like it doesn't work, just so you guys know. I remember, um, I don't know, five years ago, Calvin was six years old and we we're at the barber and um, uh, he just kept moving around and the barber would like kind of cut him the wrong way and have to like reline him up and 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 also Calvin's a talker, right? Like he's talking, he's going, he's like, he's having fun. Like he's he's talking to this barber more than this barber has been talked to by a client ever, you know? And he just loves it. And you know, Clive, he'd go and he'd just be quiet. He'd just chill. He's like a barber's dream. And Calvin's like, let's get into it. Calvin's like, what's your favorite pattern? <laughs> I remember he asked the guy. And then so I just remember I was just like trying to motivate him in any way I could. And, and so kind of like, you know, the business world, you know, do you motivate people with the stick or the carrot? And I went stick for, I was like, hey, you're not going to play basketball today. He's like, all right, you know, 30 seconds. Then I went, carrot, I'll give you a Slurpee if you sit still. Then I went, I'm not, I'm not proud of this. Went fear. I was like, he could cut your ear off. Dude, you could lose an ear today. Then I went, shame, people can see you. And honestly, you know what popped the most was, but I love you and I want your haircuts to look good because I care about you. And it seriously, like he slowed down quite a bit. I think it lasted like seven minutes versus one. It wasn't perfect. But he's like, oh, I got eye contact. And I, and I said these things to him. These things to him. At Jesus' baptism, the, the father gave him grace that empowered him to go out into the wilderness. He knew he had the father's affection before he did it right. He had it. He, was an, he, has a, he had an identity as a beloved son. Again, Satan will do, uh, again, uh, this is the, another one's identity. Satan will do anything to take your eyes off of your identity in Christ because he knows that once he does that, he can shake your foundation to its core, which makes you really vulnerable to sin. He'll try to get you to base your identity on how well you've lived, how much you have, or what you're in charge of. He might even use something that's technically true, like you've sinned, but not tell you the whole story, that it doesn't define you. He'll actually tell you it, it does define you. But the father speaks a different word over us. He, he says, son, like you're better than this. Daughter, you're better than this. Let's get out of here. Next one is context. Um, again, this is a helpful lesson for learning how to deal with temptation, this template to deal with temptation. Um, Jesus' vulnerable in this text, he's been fasting for 40 days, and he's isolated. And the place he is in, the context he finds himself in, is big. Um, we're more temptable when we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, it, one thinks of King David in the biblical text or countless people who've wrestled with addiction. It's, it's wrestling with alcohol in a bar or a sex addiction on Tinder or a gambling addiction in a casino. There are places and contexts, spaces and places that are going to make things infinitely harder for you. And if we want to overcome temptation, we need to avoid moments where we're weak and alone. Um, I have a lot of friends who have gone through recovery. And one of the things that the recovery community will say is if you've had an addiction to something for a really long time, um, there's a good chance, even when you don't want to use anymore, you're going to experience something called a relapse, which is when you, you, know, you use drugs again or you drink again when you don't want to, or you go back to a destructive behavior, gambling, you know, whatever it is, sex addiction, whatever it is. And the really cool thing about a good recovery group is they don't beat you up for relapsing. They don't rub guilt and shame into your face. They give grace, but then they go, what, do you need to, what are you going to do to change? What did you learn from your relapse? How can you tighten uh, the, the plan in your life to avoid temptation in the future? Does that make sense? Um, they don't beat you up, but they go, but we're not going to end. I'm not going to go, hey, no big deal. Great. It is a big deal. 
we love you, but now what are you going to do to change? And that's kind of the way that we should approach this thing. Um, in, her, in her exceptional book on addiction called Dopamine Nation, um, uh, Ann Lemke, a, a Stanford psychiatrist, talks about the concept of self-binding. And she says, self-binding is a term I use to describe ways we can intentionally and willingly create barriers between ourselves and our drug or addictive behavior of choice in order to mitigate compulsive overconsumption. And to save time, I'm just going to say this. She breaks it up into three categories. Um, physical self-binding, chronological self-binding, and categorical self-binding. And the idea of self-binding is not putting yourself in positions to use. She says there's the physical version, which is like you, you, you put distance between you, physical distance between you and the thing that you want. Uh, chronological chronological self-binding is only exposing yourself to certain things at certain times when you are safe. And categorical self-binding is avoiding not just the thing you struggle with, but also the triggers. So for example, if someone wrestled with a sex addiction, they would avoid news articles on sexually charged topics, even if that's not the thing they're avoiding them it's, itself. Moving quickly through this. But the idea is to consider where you're weakest and choose in advance to avoid that place. In the book of Romans, Paul talks about the idea of making no provision for the flesh, which is this idea of self-binding. A lot of times, when we're in the moment of temptation, it's too late. And so wise, godly people learn how to avoid those places. And then lastly, uh, people. Jesus was isolated from people. Uh, he'll be tempted in the garden later, and he'll ask his disciples to be with him and to pray for him in the garden of Gethsemane. But in this moment, people aren't with him. But for us, as people who are much weaker than Jesus, we need help. We need help. We need we need people that help us move to the space of our, our deepest desire when there's a stronger desire in front of us. When the temptation is strong, but our vision for our life is different. Which leads to my last point, and it's a short one. Number four, Jesus' temptation reveal an act of love for us. Um, Jesus will one day, as many of you know, die on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice. He'll die in our place for our sins, for all the times and ways that we did not endure temptation and stand up to it. Last week we saw that Jesus began his ministry by being baptized. Part of why he was baptized was as a substitute. He was set aside for us. He was baptized for us. He began to live the life we were supposed to live so that he could die the death that we were condemned to die. And from there, he goes to the, to the wilderness. Again, he's reenacting the temptation of mankind because he's reversing the fall. He's bringing his kingdom, like I talked about a few weeks ago. Again, in the garden, man was in a perfect environment when Satan came to him and said, did God really say this? Same kind of question. Did God really say, eat this fruit? It's more important than your relationship with God. There's a better way. And the first man, Adam, in a perfect environment, he believes the lies of the enemy. He prioritizes the gifts of God above God himself, he doubts the goodness of God and compromises God's laws in pursuit of a good thing. Jesus, the second Adam, by contrast, rejects Satan's lies. Not in the Garden of Eden where all his needs have been met, but in the wilderness where none of his needs are being met. And he is hungry and he's tired. We kind of missed it. We kind of passed over this. There were wild animals. And Satan's there. All that we did wrong, he did right. So when it came to die, he could bear our condemnation because the perfect life that ended under the condemnation of death could free us 
uh, could free those under the condemnation of death and restore to us abundant life. And what this does, by the way, is it assures our place with the Father, which gives us the strength to overcome the temptations of the enemy. Because we know who our Father is, and that he will provide for us. And we're united to the Spirit, who empowers us to believe the truth about our Father. And so the main temptation, the root of all temptations, is to believe a lie about God or about yourself. And so what I want to do right now is, um, we're gonna, I'll call the worship team up. We're going to do one song, and then we've got um, kind of a special kind of church family moment. I encourage you to stay for that. But as we go into this song, um, uh, can we put the questions up? Is that possible? Uh, as we move into worship, um, I encourage you guys to strum for maybe a minute. And I just want you guys to, to, to take stock, and you get to do this in your group this week too, a little bit deeper. But you need to ask God, um, where am I answering these questions wrongly? Where do I believe that I have to create enough for myself apart from you? Where do I believe that I have to build an identity for myself apart from you? Where do I believe that I have to be in control? And, and, and how is that manifesting? Like what needs to change? And even if, you love, if you'd love help with that, we'd love to help you with that. So feel free to reach out. But let's just take a second and ponder these questions. And we'll move into our last song. I know. I'm back up here talking. Um, it was a long one, guys, but I love you. Um, real quick, we have one last thing we're going to do. And uh, as a church, we, um, we, one of our values is church is a family. And uh, the idea is that, we're, that church is a community you belong to. It's not just a service you go to. And, um, and, and that, that means that, for example, um, when people leave the church, it's, it's kind of a big deal. If, if someone was just, if we're just coming to an event, it's like, oh, I used to go to the movies there. I don't go to the movies there anymore. I used to go to shows there. I don't go to shows there. I used to go to that event. Now I don't go to that event. But if we're a community of people, it's significant um, when that happens. And so whenever it's possible, it's not always possible. But whenever it's possible, um, uh, as someone's going, we, we love to honor them and bless them. And so we have um, a couple in our church who have a transition like that happening. And I just want to call them up. So um, Jimmy and Jessica Clark, would you guys come on up? Give it up. Melt for the applause. Um, so yeah, uh, Jimmy, I just, first thing, just kind of what's, what's your announcement and, and what's going on? What's God kind of saying to you guys and what are you guys going to do next? This is, uh, it's hard to do. Um, some of you guys, uh, know, and some of you may not know, but, uh, our son Jalen is the, the oldest kid in the church. Um, he's the only high schooler. Um, he also goes to school down in Chula Vista and he attends a restored South Bay's, uh, youth group. Um, and we've just kind of over the last few months been praying, um, and felt prompted by the Holy Spirit, um, as we've, we've worked through this, that, um, we just want to be super intentional with his last three years, um, that we have with him before he goes off to college and show him that, like, church matters, and he belongs um, with other believers that are his age, and we love you guys. We love Restored Kids. He's just kind of aged out of it, and Restored South Bay has a much bigger um, youth group for his age, so with that being said, um, we're going to be attending, like, Restored South Bay um, going forward, so, yeah. I know, I know. Just, that's what we're doing. Let's take it, take it slow. 
Um, uh, so obviously big news. I was going to say, obviously when transition happens, one of the things that we try to encourage people to do as a church, any transition in your life is to, is to grieve it. And part of grieving it is looking back and acknowledging what was good to, to feel what's hard about the transitions also to go, Hey, like, here's what was really good about this. And, um, and so Jim, I just want to ask you if there's anything you, um, want to say to this church, um, you know, is it a chance to kind of, yeah, share what the church has meant to you and, um, Man, I, I could probably sit up here and sit, sit up here and talk for 30 minutes on this, but I think I only got like three minutes for this one. Um, I, I guess for the first, the first thing I just want to, the people I want to acknowledge would be um, the people that were in our first GC. Um, when we first moved back to San Diego, um, I was in the military, and uh, what, what brought us back was my dad was terminally ill with cancer, um, and our first GC was there for us like every step of the way through that. And after my dad passed away, I mean. Um, Man, I, I want to thank specifically, like, Ali Shangle. Um, she secured a venue for us that, like, I could have never afforded to, like, have a really nice memorial uh, for my dad. Um, Andy sat out, like, literally put chairs out and helped set up the whole event. Um, a busy pastor, best friend, but, like, just watch him serve our family in that time. Uh, Campbell poured beers. That was cool. Um, just everybody, Adam and Trang praying for us. Um, and, and um, Faye and James and, and just everybody that was in our GC and how they stood alongside us in that moment, like, thank you for that. Um, that was just a, such a sweet time that we were able to see Jesus um, and the hardest thing that I'd ever faced in my life up to that point. Um, and then also, then we, we kind of got switched to a different GC later on as things got moved around and people left. Um, Paul and Nicole, Ashley and Scott Stroman, um, Will and Janelle Mitchell, Sharag and Willa, the priors who are no longer here, they moved to like North Carolina, but like all the people in that and the way they loved us and shared life with us and loved our kids, like man, we, we're forever grateful for you guys for that. Um, and to our current GC, which still has some of those names in it, um, man, the men in that GC, I just wanna say thank you. We've talked about some of the hardest stuff in our lives. We've challenged each other. Um, you guys have pointed me back to Jesus countless times, guys, and I'm really, really grateful for your friendship and I want that to continue. We're just gonna be going down the street 10 minutes. That would be like Nick, Will, Felipe, Chirag, uh, Carlo, and David. Thank you, guys, Carlo. I know we just kind of, you guys just jumped in with us, man, but I look forward to still spending more time with you, man. So thank you. Um, and the women, you guys are awesome as well. The wives, we love you too. Um, I just, you know, we don't have as deep of talks, right? But <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, to the next group of people, man, all the kids volunteers, you guys are amazing. Thank you for loving our kids well um, the last seven years. Um, when Jalen was just a little guy to now a teenager to our little daughters, June and Jay, you guys, they love you guys. They are so pumped to come to church, and it's because of the experiences that they have on Sundays. So, like Natalie, oh, she's awesome. All you guys, thank you so much. I'm an ugly crier. Have a good crying face. Sorry. Uh, this next person, um, <coughs> Primo, uh, Grant Clark. <laughs> I appreciate you, man. Uh, Grant and I meet on Mondays, and um, 
It's just a bullet, so she can't read it for me. Uh, man, the discipleship has been um, uh, life-changing. I'll talk to you on Monday. <laughs> How about that? He's, he's great. I love him. That, I'll keep it there for now. Um, the last two people that I just really want to highlight, I could, there's, more, there's more of you, I'm sorry. Yeah, I could do this all day, but um, first, Jackie. Um, our kids call you auntie for a reason, and it, it's, um, it's not just a word to them. You're, they see you as that. They ask to go to your house every single day, <laughs> even when we don't text you. Um, and what you mean to them is, is amazing. Um, I, I don't have family. So you, you're, you're a sister to me. And um, the way you love our kids is just, it's, you reflect Jesus to them. You show them Jesus all the time. I couldn't have asked for a better um, example of an auntie, so appreciate you for that. And then the way you've loved Jess and I through ups and downs, left and rights, you've been that steady person. Um, could have judged, could have scolded, but loved us, so. We appreciate you. And then uh, lastly, my, my guy right here, pastor, friend. Um, you've, man, I know this was supposed to be like three minutes and we're on like 10, but. Um, Everyone's here this morning. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I don't even know really where to start with, with Andy here. Um, the biggest moments in my life, the hardest things, I've brought it to him. Um, and the advice, the love, the just stop what he's doing to help me, um, it, it, it's, it's beyond words. Um, you've led this church so well, man. You probably you probably don't get told enough, man, but you're doing a great job. Yeah, he knows I love him, but this guy's great, man. This guy's great. Um, so I brought you up here, man. Um, um, and then last but not least, uh, last one is just: is there anything you want to say? You want to challenge the church with, um, kind of like a. Short exhortation, exhortation of just as you go, something you want them to hang on to or start moving into. I think I can hold it together for this. Okay. So there's there's uh, three things I'd like to kind of highlight for you guys, three scriptures. Um, one's to, like, encourage the church. One's to kind of just tell you guys to keep doing this thing. And then the last thing is maybe more of, like, a start to do or kind of motivate you. So the first one, the first scripture is First Peter 4.10. Um, just as each one has received a gift, Use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of God. And uh, that, that just came to me just like to encourage those that everybody's uniquely gifted in the church. And um, I just want to encourage you to step into those gifts. Even if you don't feel like you're worthy of it or um, you, you don't know enough about the Bible, like, or, I'm, or you just feel like you don't have a gift at all, you do. It, the scriptures say you do. So there's something that you can do that you can step into to help serve in the church and serve the people of the church. So I just want to encourage, if that's you today, like, man, you're hesitant, you're on the fence about jumping in and serving, I would uh, encourage you to do that because God says you're gifted and um, you're going to bless somebody if you, if you do that and you listen to the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, the next one is a more of like a keep doing. Uh, John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you're my dis- disciples if you love one another. And um, that's the biggest thing I could say about Restored Uptown is that you guys love each other and you love the people in the community. Anytime you're around people, you guys reflect Jesus's love like no other. So please continue to let that be a, a, a core tenet of this church going forward. Continue to love people, continue to show them Jesus. And then the last thing is more of like a challenge to you guys as we leave. Um, Matthew 9:37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Um, the community around here, there's a ton of lost people, and they need to hear the good news of Jesus. So you may not be like an evangelist. That might not be one of your gifts, but I promise you there's people in your lives at work, your neighbors, at the barista at the coffee shop you go to, the people at the park where your kids play, where you'll have opportunities to share the gospel. And you'll know, you'll feel prompted by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have to be some crazy sermon, but there's going to be moments where they ask you a question. Now, why are you happy all the time? Or why do you handle this this thing like this? I would encourage you to just, in that moment, reflect Jesus. Show them Jesus. Share the good news because they need to hear it. So we love you guys. Uh, Thank you for everything. Then real quick, I just want to call up uh, Tabitha, Julia, and Grant, and um, they're just gonna we're gonna pray for them. Uh, we'll encourage them, and then um, Jackie will pray. And we'll be we'll finish out again. If you're new, this is not normally how long we go. Uh, sermon was long, but I don't want to shortchange this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so um, these are GC members, discipleship group members, and um, and then um, can I ask if we're if you're able to, if you're in our GC, if you want to come up just to stand with us, that uh, would be cool if you're able to. Um, and then. Um, yeah, Grant, you can share first. Um, and then Jack, you want to pray? Absolutely. Got me emotional at the back, man. Um, Jimmy, I just wanted to say to you, over the last year or so, I've seen you um, respond to the call of Jesus to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. And I know you've laid down things that are really important to you, Um, out of obedience. (laughs) I know it hasn't been easy, but I want to commend you for responding to him and following him. And I think it's just brought me such joy, seeing the joy and peace you found in that, that it's been like a hard but a beautiful journey. And um, I I love the way you've chosen his way and chosen your family and um, chosen to obey and just found such life in it, man. It's so beautiful, so proud of you. Jess, I have such deep affection for you, and um, I think it's just been cool to see you um, grow in, I think the main thing I thought of was like that what Jesus has for you is to live more fully into yourself, not less of yourself, like you don't have to change to be who God wants you to be, and um, something I really admire about you is that as I think you become more aware of your gifts, I think a lot of us carry like a lot of this extra like I guess self-consciousness or like things that come with it but you're just like uh, I want to glorify God with the gifts that he's given me and it just feels really like simple and humble and obedient um, and I feel really encouraged by that and um, yeah just that you I think are I've seen you trust more and more in what God has for you um, trust 
other people and what <laughs> they can bring and like risk vulnerability and um, just to see um, the truth in both like hard ways, but also ways that like you can celebrate who you already are. You don't need to be anything different. Um, and just really quick, Jimmy, <laughs> I, my sister, I was like, told her about my last sermon. She had no input, but she said, my phone started playing the next sermon and that Jimmy was so helpful and encouraging. <laughs> so just so you know, <laughs> from afar. <laughs> Um, yeah, Jess, it's like been such an honor to call you friend and walk alongside you these past few years and just like grow together. And um, I think it's just like really beautiful to see your passion for Jesus, family and like culture all kind of combine into one and like just kind of show what that can look like. Um, I think also kind of Julia tapped in on this, but like you're you have this like keen intuition you like really see and believe in people and are really encouraging in a safe space. Once people are like with you, they know it's like very apparent. Um, and I think what really attracts people to you is like the fun that you bring and you like have this like creativity and joy and like can make a space so welcoming um, that I'm really excited that South Bay gets to like experience. And um, I'm really excited for to see what happens with you guys in that space and like what growth comes there. So. Yeah, and everything you I was instructed not to talk and only pray. So. Oh, <laughs> 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 guys. Okay. Um, obviously, there's. I am still gonna talk. I'm sorry. <laughs> I got the mic. Just kidding. Um, I am honestly. This is really hard because you never want to see people go and you definitely don't want to see people go that you're very close with and that you love. But at the same time, um, I think that it is so important what they're doing. And um, I just really want to pray that like God would meet the the reasons why you're going to South Bay that God would meet you in that and you would see the fruit of that and wouldn't be in vain and um, that you guys would feel his presence with you yeah God I why does this have to be so hard man <laughs> um following you is not easy and uh, it's not an easy journey. Sometimes you call us to things that are so far from our comfort zone. Um, but you do it because you love us. And I pray that the reasons that you've made apparent to Jimmy and Jess um, about going to South Bay, um, that you would start to open doors and reveal opportunities for them to really plug in um, in that community, that Jalen would feel um, welcomed, that he would feel like he has a place, that he would get um, even just like the practical, pragmatic part of going to church and going to a community and uh, being with people, being vulnerable, having fun, sharing meals, like the parts of church that are really important um, the family aspect of it that he would learn um, in these next few years um, as an active and willing participant um, so that they could uh, carry on into adulthood for him. 
Um, I pray uh, just for Jimmy and Jess um, in the transition. I know there's a lot of exciting things about South Bay. There's things that South Bay just does right, man. And I am happy for them to enjoy those things. And I pray that you would provide friendships and relationships where they can really be known um, and welcomed and challenged. Um, they could continue growing and grow in ways that uh, just even weren't possible here. So I thank you for all that you're doing. I thank you for going before them um, and going behind them. Uh, and I pray for your blessing and your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. All right, give it up for these two. And uh, I know we went long today. Sorry about that. Um, please go get your kids. We, this won't happen next week. Um, but just want to say we love you and we care about you. And don't forget, it's Grant's birthday. Get that man a gift. And uh, make sure to give Jimmy a hug on the way out. Love you guys.